Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. How's it going? It's going good. Good. So today, um, we're taking on the topic of dating while Christian, specifically in the more conservative and evangelical traditions that you and I grew up in. Um, So there's all kinds of books out there with dating rules that good Christians, usually good Christian girls, are supposed to follow that have some pretty um, troubling, concerning uh, double standards for men and women. So, Katie, you want to kick us off? What kind of messages did you get about dating from church? Oh, yeah. Let's just open up this can of worms. Yep. Wide let's do open, it. folks. I have to be really honest that I got a lot of messages growing up in high school about this and middle school, but it really wasn't an issue for me until I got to college in terms of practice. Uh, because when I was in high school, I was busy trying to get good grades, doing sports, being active in clubs. Good and for church. you. I really was like there and I went to a small school. It was very slim pickings. Um, <laughs> and I had one steady boyfriend for about a year who was also in that evangelical world. So it was just kind of assumed by everybody that that our relationship fit those strict standards. So mm. and that that was that was pretty much true. It was a very sweet relationship um, that I had in high school. But when I got to college and, you know, dating was much more prominent in my life. I was interested in this guy who was a year younger than me. And I was involved in this small group. Do you know what I'm talking about? Small group Bible study. That was a big thing in college. You're in a small group and you're being, you know, um, I even forget the word, but there's someone in charge of that group who's literally two years older than the rest who's supposed to be the leader of this group. And Mm -hmm. um, she took it upon herself to tell me that the guy I was interested in was not really a Christian, even though she didn't know him. And even though he was very active in the Presbyterian church. Do you know why she said that? I, I don't know. He must not have met some litmus test that she had. I don't know if it was because the language around Christianity in that group was so narrow that Mm. folks who attended a Presbyterian church wouldn't be considered Christian. I couldn't tell you what it was, but it was very much, hearsay because she didn't know this guy she must have heard it from someone else Mm. um so it was really off-putting for me and like any other 20 year old I was gonna do what I wanted you know and I ended up just really withdrawing from that group of women because I didn't like somebody telling me who I could or could not date and judging them before even getting to know them so and this guy and I ended up dating for I think four years and had a great, loving relationship. I mean, for 20-somethings, early 20-somethings. And so at one point, I confronted this woman. I mean, she must have reached out to me. We were together. And I told her, you know what? I really don't want to talk to you about anything because I'm afraid you're just going to judge me for mm-hmm. this decision that I made. And when I look back on my departure from evangelicalism, that was a really key turning point for me uh, because it was just downright judgmental and wrong and was not really in the spirit of my faith that I understood it in terms of 
being loving and open-minded and including everybody. Mm -hmm. And I also give myself a lot of credit for standing up for myself because that was a hard thing to do, particularly in that tradition. But um, yeah, I mean, I would say Christian dating was really what turned me off from evangelicalism. So what about you? Did you ever hear this kind of thing from Mm. your small group leaders? So I was a lot younger than you were when, um, when I had that moment of the church starting to, as I saw it, interfere in my dating life, um, and where it kind of pushed me away. Um, the, but the main messages that I got around dating and relationships when I was growing up had a lot more to do with sex and virginity Mm -hmm. and, um, abstaining from sex until marriage. Like we didn't really talk about relationships, um, or how to choose a partner or what to look for in a partner or things like consent or really like any of the things that, um, a good sex education (laughs) curriculum would contain. Um, basically all I heard was don't have sex and figure the rest out. And it was almost like if you weren't having sex, then your relationship was fine and probably holy in the eyes of God. As long as you were both abstaining from sex, everything was fine. And, um, there, there were no real, um, nothing, you know, the church didn't really concern itself with anything else. Um, I guess, I guess, like you said, um, as long as I was with a Christian, like that was a big thing too. Like I had to, you had to be dating a Christian. Unevenly yoked. Yes. Oh gosh. I haven't heard that phrase in a really long time. (laughs) Bringing it back in 2017. But one of the defining moments, um, happened when I was around 13 with regard to dating, relationships, sex. And, um, I don't know if this rings a bell for you, but our youth group took us to a true love weights rally. Did you ever go to one of those? Um, I have thoughts on this, but I did not go to a rally. No. So continue. Okay, so this rally was being hosted by another church in my town. Um, there were like three or four main churches in my town where, where all the everybody went to one of those. And um, we go, I, I remember going to my church and um, for youth group after, after church on a Sunday afternoon, I was going for youth group. And the youth leaders loaded us up in a van and they didn't really tell us where we were going, just <laughs> oh that we gosh. were going to another church. And, um, I'm not even sure that they told our parents what we were doing. Like it was a, it was a full on like kidnapping. (laughs) So we put us, they put us in the van, they take us to this other church. And what I remember about it was it was a huge, like a pep rally with probably a hundred or more teenagers from all the local churches. Most of these kids I went to school with, but not all. Um, and it was just this big confusing pep rally in an unfamiliar church. I was surrounded by a bunch of strangers and kids from school. And there, I remember it was so weird because they started with a skit about the dangers of drinking and driving. (laughs) Okay. And they didn't really like get to the point. I mean, they had some like games and then they, they did that thing where they like tossed the beach balls out into the audience. And then the, the kids are like, hitting the beach balls. There's like a laser light show and all this. And then they kind of spring this uh, testimony on us about the importance of waiting until marriage to have sex. And not only did they 
do this testimony, but they pass around these pledge cards that you were expected. Every kid was expected to sign this pledge card saying that they would not lose their virginity until marriage. And you were supposed to sign it in front of everybody. And then they passed around an offering plate and you put it in the offering plate. And I, the feeling that I remember the most about this whole, um, rally event was feeling manipulated. I felt mm. like we were pushed into this situation. We weren't giving in, given any information or preparation. We were put in front of a bunch of people, um, put on the spot and told to sign a pledge. And I remember feeling like my trust was kind of betrayed, like my trust in my youth leaders. Honestly, that was the first crack. Um, because it felt, it really did feel like a betrayal and I'm in this crowd of strangers and kids from school. I'm being preached at by other strangers. And if I didn't sign this card and put it in the offering plate, people would know and people would talk about it at school. So I remember like pretending to sign the card, but not signing the card. And putting Good for it you. In. <laughs> yeah, I put it in the offering plate. And I remember the girl sitting next to me like gave me some side eye and asked <laughs> me why I didn't sign it. And I was like, I'm 13. <laughs> I remember feeling like this is this is not a decision that I'm comfortable making right now and it's not a decision that I want to make under coercion. And I just felt like I I'm not thinking about sex right now. Um I'm a little young. I'm just this is not on my radar. I don't want to make this promise um in this way. And um that was the only time my youth group the through my entire college youth group experience, I mean, a uh, high school youth group experience, it's the only time they ever addressed sex, dating, and relationships. Wow. Wow. Yes. I have so many thoughts. Okay. For one, what a precocious 13-year-old you were. I was not so lucky. Yes, I, was. <laughs> I was. I will talk about my true love Wade's experience in just a minute. But first, I want to recap what you just laid out. So your youth leader abducted you. Yes. Then they confused you as to what the intent was of the event. Yes. Tried to distract you with beach balls and skits. Yes. And then coerced you and bamboozled you into signing a pledge without your consent. So that, I mean, there's so many things wrong about that. I know. <laughs> that the topic is about your sexuality and they've just laid out exactly what we would call, like, sexual abuse if that were to happen in a relationship. Um, it's just mind-boggling to me, and and yet I don't find it surprising because I had so many experiences just like that in the church where I felt like the surprise factor was always the thing that they turned to and they wanted to do something that was really offensive. Um, so <laughs> when, I was, when I was 13, my church also participated in True Love Waits. I think we were right around the... I think we're about the same age and that was really the height of that movement. And we had a whole curriculum about abstinence huh. and I mean they they brought in people who are HIV positive who had gotten HIV through different different ways, not just sexually, which was informative just to hear from folks about kind of the risks involved. But I was 13 at the time too and I mean I did take I did take the pledge and I was coming more from the point of this sounds like a really good idea. I'm 13. I'm barely kissed like three boys at this point. Like it just seems so abstract. And everything they were saying was, if you do this, like God will be pleased with you yeah. and you will have this amazing marriage and husband 
whenever that happens. And for me at 13, that was what, like 10 years away or something like that in my mind. So um, I was not precocious like you. I didn't have the strength to say, this is not a decision I feel prepared to make at this point in my life when it's so far off. To me, it was just about kind of following the rules and, um, and believing that there would be a reward at the end. So um, I, I obviously have different thoughts about it now, but it's just interesting that we were probably having parallel experiences and you had this inner strength that I didn't have to say, no, 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 I'm not going to be complicit <laughs> in this. Uh-huh, this is this is not right. I don't know that I would call it inner strength as much as I would call it rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> I was not rebellious at that age. <laughs> I was fully like, I see what you're doing here. And I say no. I mean, I wouldn't... I wouldn't say that it, like, pushed me into the opposite direction. That really, it didn't have that impact um, on me, which I've heard from other people, like, oh, it made me so mad that I figured I would just go ahead and have sex. Like, that's not, (laughs) that's not what it did. But it definitely made me start to question my um, authority figures in the church a lot more. Mm. And, um and I guess maybe that was good. That that was sort of the beginnings of my like skepticism of, of just not taking people, what they say at face value and going back to scripture and talking to people that I trusted and things like that. And, yeah. um, that, I don't know, like I, it, for me, it was just a little more like, how dare you <laughs> than, than it was about like a strength of character or anything like that. Well, it raised some red flags for you and rightfully so mm-hmm. because I mean, we've touched on this every episode. This is about control and domination mm-hmm. of women's bodies, especially telling them what's acceptable for them to do mm-hmm. with their bodies and their time or their relationships. Like in my instance with this college friend, um, it's just very top down authoritarian, yeah, uh, And I also was thinking about this when we were getting ready for today, that I feel like the church has really bought into our secular culture's obsession with dating and singleness and mm-hmm. telling women what they ought to do in order to land a man. And one of the phrases I was thinking about that stuck out to me that I did here in high school was that we are, we're supposed to guard our hearts, guard, guard your heart. I heard this all the time when it came to dating relationships, um, And I don't think there's anything in our sacred tradition that calls us to protect ourselves from heartache and relationship with each other because Jesus didn't live like that. So why should we be asked to do that? Um, There's something so important that we learn when we are let down, when we're disappointed by people we love, when there's, um, when there has to be reconciliation or grieving a relationship that didn't work out, those those are such important lessons. We learn resilience and hope and how to grieve and heal. And I feel like the church was trying to keep us from the experiences of learning these really important parts of life, which is opposite of what the church should be doing. Right. I wonder what the motivation was for that, um, keeping us from pain. I mean, I could see like feeling like that's a good intention, like you don't want... Um, your young people inflicting pain on each other. So maybe it's better to just tell them not to date until they're ready to marry. Cause isn't that, that's really what it comes down to. It's like guarding your heart is all about, um, like not 
not dating, not putting yourself through uh, relationships that may or may, that may not lead to marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I, yeah, it's so. I really struggle with wondering, like, what's the motivation behind that? And is it uh, is it just another way to keep kids from having sex? Like, if we don't let them date, then they can't be alone in the same room together, and then they can't have sex. And that's really what it's about. Yeah, and, and then to the idea that you don't need to practice at being in relationship. I mean, it yeah. requires a lot of skill building that only happens when you practice it. Mm-hmm, exactly. Such a fairy tale. It really is. And I didn't hear guard your heart. That was not a phrase I, I ever heard until college when I, um, had us, I had more of a small group. Um, and I, I spent a lot more time with, um, the evangelical campus ministries in college. My, I think my church growing up was a lot more mainline. And so they just didn't talk about hard subjects basically. Um, but when I got to college, we talked about the hard subjects in a very evangelical way. Hmm. And the other thing that I heard a lot in college that was that I was supposed to be on the lookout for a godly husband. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) And I never fully understood what that meant. Oh, gosh. I'm just getting triggered in the funniest way. Oh, no. (laughs) A godly husband. (laughs) Yes. It's such a, um, it, I, like no pressure, right? Like <laughs> on anyone, <laughs> on anyone, on the man to be godly, on you to find him, the needle in the haystack. I mean, it, like I don't know. And so I heard a lot of that, and it just was very unhelpful to me. I remember thinking, like, I can't really use this. I don't know what a godly person is, and I like I like all these other people that aren't so godly, <laughs> and I don't know. Like we have we have fun, so I didn't. It just didn't make sense to me. Um, but that judgmental language, along with, you know, my formative experiences growing up, were a, a big part of the reason I started moving away from the church as a young person and didn't really come back until I was a lot more secure in who I was and didn't, I, f- I felt like it took me a while to have, um, I don't know, the, the idea of myself and my faith that couldn't be affected by hearing this stuff all the time. Um, and I could, I had better discernment, I guess is maybe a way to put it, but, um, I'm really, I feel really lucky that that stuff didn't make it into my, um, younger, more formative years about finding the godly husband and the guarding your heart. Um, because I, just what you said, like learning these really, um, important, significant life skills. Um, I look back on my high school relationships and, and I learned a lot, especially through the ends of those relationships. Mm -hmm. Like you said, um, I do wish though that I'd had a better sex education experience growing up either at school or through my church. Um, and I think, you know, we have this misconception that sex ed is just about like preventing pregnancy and STIs. And if we, if we've shown kids a list of STIs and, and we talk about how to, that preventing them through abstinence is the best way to do it. Uh, we feel like we've checked a box and we're done, but a really good comprehensive science-based sex ed program really teaches people all of these relationship skills, um, communication skills, how to spot red flags of abusive partners, how to negotiate and, um, 
understand your boundaries and refusal skills for when you are not ready to have sex yet, how to communicate that to your partner, um, body image, how to identify healthy and unhealthy um, media outlets, and um, all of that stuff I feel like is vital to healthy dating relationships. And I got none of that as a kid and was just kind of learning as I went along. Mm Mm-hmm. And for a long time, I was really confused about how to exist in relationship with men <laughs> because the messages you hear from secular culture are one thing. The messages you hear from your church are another thing. Often they conflict, but a lot of times the end result is that women are still treated like objects. <laughs> and I feel like the church really lets young people down in this way. Um, so I think there's absolutely a a place to talk about this stuff in our faith spaces and the church has a responsibility to really move past the rules the fear the shame-based teaching around dating and sex and we focus mostly on being a young person in dating but i think we need to also be aware in the church that there are people who are seeking out relationships or dating experiences throughout the lifespan Absolutely. So sexuality education and the, the way that you talked about it in the comprehensive way that includes negotiation skills and communication skills really is something that we need to teach throughout the lifespan and absolutely talk about. And I think with, with young people, to go back to what you were saying, just starting with how we model respect for young people. I mean, you were completely mm-hmm. disrespected. Your whole group was disrespected in mm-hmm. that True Love Waits rally of not being told, not being able to consent being bamboozled, that is not the way to model for young people how they ought to behave with each other in whatever kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. So it just starts with treating young people as individuals, as human beings who are capable of making good decisions for themselves and trusting them to do that and showing them how to do that. So just start with the basics, folks. It's not that hard. Right. Goodness. So um, we've talked a lot about how the church gets involved in our dating lives. Um, do you see any connections that um, maybe our sacred text would play into this frame? I, there's a really particular story I want to bring up, and this might not be something that you heard about growing up, but it's another phrase that I heard in that same kind of guard your heart stuff, which was women need to wait. Girls need to wait for their Boaz. And if you don't know who... No, I didn't hear okay, that. So if you don't know who Boaz is, it actually connects with the story we talked about last week with Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz is the wealthy landowner who is related to Naomi, so that when Ruth and Naomi come um, back to her homeland, he allows Ruth to go and glean the leftover crops after the fields have been harvested. And there's a lot of troubling parts to this. At the end, Boaz and Ruth are together they're in they're going to get married so um it's the way that some white evangelicals talk about the story and actually not just white evangelicals but that's the context in which i grew up they romanticize this relationship like boaz is this you know godly man and he (laughs) rescues ruth and she waits for him and like here he comes and he's on his like his white horse to save her from this relationship and so there's this whole movement called waiting for boaz Waiting for your Boaz, where Christian women are discouraged from dating, like we were talking about before, and just practicing on their own, being a good wife, and trusting that God will bring them this godly husband to them eventually. It's really problematic because that relation, for one, that relationship is so not consensual. 
Boaz has all the power. He has all the money. Um, at one point, Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, tells her to like go and basically offer herself sexually to Boaz when he's drunk, which is a really troubling part of the text. So it's not mm. this romantic thing. I mean, Ruth has no real agency in this story. Uh, so to romanticize it and make it seem like it's this thing that we should aspire to is just it's just really highly problematic. And I was writing about this. It's in my book, too. But I was writing about this online, and I had um, a woman comment that she had written about this, specifically about the Black women's experience of this story, because apparently Waiting for Boaz is also used in African-American churches. Her name is Miriam Williams, and I'll, um, I'll include her in the show notes, but I wanted to read something that she wrote about this. She said, I think almost every unmarried Black church girl has told a friend or heard a friend say, I'm waiting for my Boaz. Women who say this learned that women who end up married to godly men who can take care of them are like Ruth. They are women who are devoted to their family and to God, who work hard and quietly at a productive activity that has nothing to do with men and who listen to their mothers. They are not sexual. Hmm. They do not waste time or money. They do not flirt. This is the embedded theology we black women carry with us as we pay for books and singles conferences that tell us how to wait, pray, take control of our desires with pure thoughts and wait some more. I think of it as kind of an Old Testament version of a Disney princess movie. This is the embedded theology. Just so powerful, Dang. especially the part about the capitalism of it. Yes. Keep buying into this idea and coming to conferences about waiting for your Boaz. I'm like, yes. yes. Thank you, Miriam Williams, for this intersectional analysis. We will definitely include you in the show notes because everyone should go read your piece about this. Yes. Two things that makes me think of the uh, the consumerism part of it. It's very similar to the self-care stuff that we've talked about where we take something that is truly about giving women agency and we commodify it and sell them on this idea um, of coming to conferences and buying books and all of that about self-care. So also about waiting for Boaz. But uh, the other thing that I just kept thinking was what, how, how? Did convincing women to give up their agency become conflated with romance? Mm, that's good. How, how are we there? Mm. Oh, Ashley, I'm telling you, you are on it today. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't, that, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Now I'm going to have just to think that, about that. Yeah, me too. Um, wow. But it, I see that theme over and over um and it just feels like something that we should maybe come back to sometime yeah, so giving up agency is equated with romance wow yeah that's deep and it's <laughs> right on the money <laughs> you know all of the books um i feel like a lot of the books that we've that we've uh talked about are the themes from books that we read growing up about dating that seems to be a common um a common refrain is um that the man is the rescuer and the woman is, or the man is the godly person in the relationship. And I mean, yeah, I do. I feel like that there's a lot to explore here. Oh, um, I need a but, palate cleanser. Can we talk about other books we're reading? Yes. Yes. Let's talk about um, what we're listening to, what we're reading. Um, so I'll start. I am, I've been listening to um, for a couple years now, the Dear Sugar podcast with Cheryl Strayed and Steve Allman. And for those who aren't familiar, Dear Sugar was an online advice column on the rumpus.net. And it was written by Cheryl Strayed, who was the author of Wild, uh, which was made into a movie. 
Um, and a collection of her best advice columns from Dear Sugar on the Rumpus was made into the novel Tiny Beautiful Things, which is an incredible book, um, along with Wild. They're, they're two of my favorites. Um, and the Dear Sugars podcast is really cool. It's um, an, an advice column show. It's an advice show. So people write in with their questions and write these really beautiful letters about things that they're going through and they want some insight and some help and just like an outside perspective. And Cheryl and Steve do their best to, to give them some kind of answer. Um, everything they say is really beautiful and heartfelt. Um, and recently they've just come back for their newest season. They had a couple of episodes called The Power of No, which I highly recommend. They both feature an interview with Oprah. And what was amazing to hear, so the the show, the theme of the show is all about how to say no, how to identify our boundaries and set boundaries. And Oprah actually talks about how she learned to set boundaries in her life, how she learned to say no after decades of being a yes person, everybody's yes person. Family asked her for money all the time. People always were asking her to uh, come and speak and help them raise money. And um, she always said yes. And she said one of the biggest reasons, which she, when she really sat down to understand why she was saying yes and she was becoming so resentful of all these demands that people were making on her, but she knew it was her own fault because she kept agreeing to it all. And she was trying to figure out why. She was always saying yes, and what she learned about herself was that she just wanted people to think she was a nice person. Mm. And she realized that it really wasn't that valuable to her that a bunch of randoms think she's a nice person. What was really valuable to her were was her time and her um, setting her boundaries. And she learned that the real, like the people in her life that truly loved her, would still think she's a nice person even when she says no. Mm. So, and it wouldn't end the relationship. So the people who heard no and ended the relationship, she was done with. She didn't want them in her life anyway. Um, so it was a really, I just loved both of those episodes. They were so good. I highly recommend the whole podcast. There are some really, um, really true gems in those podcasts. So that's what I'm listening See, to. Here we go. Power of no setting boundaries. This is the stuff that we need to be taught mm-hmm. in church when we're young people and over and over again. Okay. Yes. Everyone. Thank you. So, um, yes. I have been, I just finished reading Maya Angelou's last autobiography called mom and me and mom. This is the last one she wrote before she died. And I read, I know why the caged bird sings about a year ago. And so, I had heard some of the story that's in this. This is about Maya Angelou's relationship with her mother, Vivian Baxter, who was an entrepreneur. She was a philanthropist. Uh, She was also a really heavy drinker. And she had sent her two young children, uh, including Maya, to live with their grandmother across the country when they were little kids. And so um, Maya has a very complex relationship with her mom, which is not an uncommon thing. But what I got from mm-hmm. it was, at its core, it was a story of fierce love, very fierce, steadfast love that they were able to kind of navigate this up and down relationship that they had, um, feelings of abandonment, trying to understand who her mom was as Maya grows into her adulthood. And there's just some beautiful moments of her mom showing up for her um, really as an adult, like she knew how to parent her as an adult and not a child, which I think is something we don't talk about, but mm. she was just such a steadfast presence. Like 
would drop anything to come be there for her daughter if she needed her. And um, it's kind of what I w- was reading to go to bed at night just to help me sort of soothe my soul. So I would highly recommend it. Um, Mom and Me and Mom by Maya Angelou. Love All it. right, Ashley, you're up for this episode's Kindreds of the Moment. So what have you got? So... I had to think about this one a little bit, but um, I realized that all summer I have been enjoying a series on Refinery29, so I want to lift them up as uh, as our kindred of the moment, even though it's a lot of people. It's a lot of journalists, a lot of people that are interviewed, people who write essays and share their stories, but Refinery29 has been doing this really awesome project called Take Back the Beach, and um, the series started at the beginning of summer kind of as a way to really challenge um, the idea of the beach body that women are sold and men are sold um, by mass media, especially at the beginning of summer. And um, the series has been tackling, I mean, there's tons of articles. It's all on their website, Um, but they've been tackling issues surrounding body image, fat shaming, size acceptance, aging, um, body changes after surgery, pregnancy, and really um, exploring like what's considered beautiful and sexy um, and challenging some of those norms. And so um, some of the articles specifically that I've really enjoyed are um, the myth of the yoga body, which um, really dives into how Instagram um, and social media have really made yoga in some ways, they've they've made this like um, idealized yoga body, um, and made it inaccessible mm. to people um, who don't fit that mold. But then in other ways, there's these great yoga activists that don't fit that mold that um, are doing kind of the opposite work, like showing that anybody can can do yoga. And so that was a really cool um, article. And then um, there was one that was amazing. A woman named Crystal Miller is on Instagram, and she had um, a really, she struggled with Crohn's disease for a really long time and it wasn't diagnosed and she ended up having to have surgery that um, gave her an ileostomy. And so she wears an ostomy bag and she's on Instagram and she posts these really sexy selfies of herself in um, like lingerie and underwear with her ostomy bag showing. Oh, it's so amazing. Um, And the other one that really stood out to me, so there's a video called Little Girls Say Big Girl Things. And it's a video of these three really adorable girls under 10 years old, somewhere around that age. And they're mimicking how adult women talk about their bodies. Oh, gosh. I can imagine. They're working out and talking about how we've got to keep going so we can burn off the pizza we just ate. And they're, like, pinching their fat in the mirror and and things like that. And um, and it's a really – it's a reminder of – that what we say about ourselves, you know, we're, if we do that in front of younger kids, they're hearing it, they're picking up on it. Um, even if we're not talking about their bodies, they're absorbing everything we say, um, that, and then, you know, how young this starts, the body shaming and stuff, how young it really does start with girls. Um, because the sad thing in that video, yeah, a lot of it's absurd, like what these girls are saying, but I've heard it from young girls, some of it. Um, so, yeah, uh, Refinery29, I think they're doing some really uh, great work around challenging um, standards of beauty and standards of uh, what the beach body is um, in popular culture and our mass media. So go check out Take Back the Beach series. 
Thank you for sharing about that. And we'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. You can go find it. And I can't wait to look at it. I'm both excited and kind of terrified. (laughs) 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 All right. Next time we're going to be talking about the real cost of emotional labor. A big topic. So we'll talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 